was just going to say you were going a bit Dalek-y there. I wasn't sure whether we were going to have to s- stop. Am I still going Dalek-y? Exterminate. Exterminate. Let's microwave this puppy. <laughs> oh, dear. Where are you going to go? Oh, okay. <laughs> Bing! <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 34 of the world-famous Tedgebots Audi podcast. Cats. I am John Hammond. <laughs> what? It's <laughs> a podcast. Podcats. Podcats. <clears throat> what a silly mistake to make, Darius. I'm John Hammond. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Oh, I thought I thought John Hammond was from uh, uh, Top Gear. I'm Jeremy no. Clarkson oh, with my golf bats. Yeah, we're not allowed to swear on the podcast, are no. we? Or podcasts? Well, we try not to anyway. <laughs> Jeremy Clarkson, that man needs to die very much. Um, what do you reckon? Do we advocate murder on the podcasts? <laughs> podcasts? Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. You know, swearing—that's right out. But let's yeah, yeah. Let's let's make a list of who needs to be murdered. Jeremy Clarkson, top of the list. <laughs> um. So, welcome to another episode. Oh dear, I, I'm not sure whether we've improved or unimproved in terms of professionality. I listened. To, I, I listened to episode one the other day. Yeah. No. Well, I'm deliberately sabotaging it. Haven't you noticed that? Sorry, Joe. Okay, so I don't. Being... I don't actually believe in uh, trying to be too professional in the intro because then it just sounds stagey and silly. Well, <laughs> which is why I never let really <laughs> let you get away with trying to <laughs> lead in in a sensible way or <laughs> have someone ready. Okay, well, for my well, identity. Well, one of us is trying to be professional. So, here. f you, Darren. <laughs> okay, so in this thrilling episode, uh, we have copious stuff to talk about uh, we have some follow up to new listeners, hello new listeners F when we refer to FU, it's follow up uh, we have some exciting thinking. dirty buggers exciting thrilling news oh yeah we didn't talk about Tetsuicon do you see what I've written down, Tetsuicon question mark question mark, too early question mark Yeah. is it too early to talk about that? Yes. talk about te- the next Tetsuicon yeah, well, we don't have any plans at all so, oh, yes. so that, I'd say that's a bit too early then <laughs> Right, and loads of other stuff, so keep listening. I'm sure you'll enjoy some of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so follow-up from last follow time. Up, follow up. Just really briefly, everyone knows that I put in deliberate errors in order to give people something to you know, respond. So, of course, I was deliberately getting the Star Wars um, numbers mixed up. The Empire Strikes Back is V for five, mm. not four. Mm. And... In the discussion about Chicken Saurus, and you have to listen to a previous episode, maybe even the previous episode, I have no idea, um, to, get, to get the lowdown on the Chicken Saurus and the, the link with Mutant Ripley. Mutant Ripley is from Alien Resurrection, not from Alien Cubed. Yes. Hang on. Uh, Isn't Alien Cubed Alien Resurrection? Oh dear. <laughs> it is. Don't get follow up on follow up. Because there's you four sure? aliens for alien films. Alien 3 is the one where they're in the prison colony and it's similar to Alien, the original film, in sort of its plot. And that's the last one I've seen. And then Alien... Oh no, that is Alien Cubed, isn't it? Okay, so you don't know what you're talking about either. 
No, well, c- cubes have four sides, There's right? just... Okay, if I can just stop you there, <laughs> yeah, and forget everything John said, yeah. and Darren was right. Okay, so Alien yeah. Resurrection is the one with Mutant Ripley, yeah, and Alien Cubed is yeah. the one with the prison colony, the monks, the the oxen. Oxen? Yeah, yes. Okay, whatever. Well, it's remember. meant to be. It's meant to be ox, but then they change it, put a dog in it. But if you watch the special edition, it's actually they put the ox back in, taking the dog out. Um, where are we going with this? Some more f- uh, now. Uh, people do sometimes leave intelligent questions actually on the tetzu.com site where the podcast is, and where you might be right now if you're listening to this online. What? Uh, Mm. And oh, let's excuse me a second. I just open the question, <clears throat> open the comment. Uh, our, following our discussion about rewilding, didn't we have a long chat about rewilding? Tristino, if that is your real name, Tristino left some interesting comments about um, uh, a thing that we didn't we didn't mention. Oh God, was it Tristino? Uh, it's Tristino. Tristino. It's so not. Um, I think I think there was there was some discussion that we were having about um, whether there's any like money to be made out of rewilding, you know, whether there's any fi- financial incentive to do it. And Tristino talks about ecotourism and the fact that if you do say, well, this touches on what you said, you know, if you did reconstruct Pleistocene Park and in I don't know in England or in North America or in Siberia, wherever, if you had bison and mammoths and and, and lions running around, you know, that there's a People might pay to go and see it as a theme park. So, so and that has and that has been done in some places. You know, like uh, places in the UK and elsewhere in Europe where people have reintroduced lynxes and uh, wolves and bears and bison and so on. Then, yeah, that, that often is a, a tourist uh, attraction. So, so yes, thank you, Tristino. There is indeed money to be made in rewilding also, via ecotourism. Tri- Tristino actually points out that there is a Pleistocene Park. Pleistocenepark.ru is the website. Oh. It's in Russia. Although, sadly, it's not a Jurassic Park-style affair, <laughs> but rather an actual wildlife park. So thank you for your comments. Yes. Right, and therein, that's the end of FU. No, it slash- isn't. Ah. I don't know why you write this agenda and then don't look at it while you are while you talk. <laughs> oh no, the lungs thing. <laughs> yeah. So I need to find the email. Yes. What a royal what a royal screw up, Darren. I mean really. Do you want to talk through this? No, I don't understand any of it. And it was your mistake. Okay. Well, this so how do we set this thing? how do we set this up? We we were talking about was it because of tapirs? It, we were talking about the fact that tapirs can punt along the bottom of yeah. lakes, rivers, yeah. and you said, how do they do that? Is it because they are denser than water? And I said, well, they might be. And, I said, and then we were talking about how animals with lungs, animals with air inside them, how do they actually you know, get down to depth? And I said, one of the things you could do is get rid of the air. And I said, I thought the people did this, and yeah. I thought I'd read this somewhere. Well... Anonymous, a regular commenter, thank you, Anon, says, I'm going to read the whole thing, it's quite interesting, competitive free divers, talking here about humans, do not expel their air, they would most likely die. <laughs> Let's skip the big boring physics lecture here, Escape, 
Jesus, sorry. Exhaling, known as doing a negative, is dangerous due to gas pressure laws, Boyle's law, maybe. Um, free divers are in danger if they if they have no oxygen, no air in their lungs. They're in danger of shallow water blackout under normal conditions because the change in pressure on ascent can suck all the oxygen out of their blood into their lungs, leading to temporary unconsciousness, danger of drowning. A diver with empty lungs would, be, would very likely asphyxiate upon reaching extreme depths. Competitive free divers can attain depth so deep that the gas in their lungs and airways is dramatically compressed. They control their buoyancy not by jettisoning the air, which is what I said they did, but by wearing weights open cell neoprene that will compress at depth, low volume goggles or none at all, and by using a diving sled in the no limits category free, di- free diving. They do not allow water to flood their nasal passages because it's easier to equalize the pressure in their inner ears at extreme depths. Now, this is me, not, not quoting Anonymous, but I had, sp- again, specifically read of a free diver who does indeed fill his um, sinuses with, with water. So I don't know if that contradicts what Anonymous says, but um, whatever. I'm, I'm sure I have read that. I'll check it out. Um, but blah, blah, blah. They don't allow water for the nasal passages. They also tend to be skinny buggers with low body fat. The 20 plus minute breath holds are achieved by packing with pure oxygen for a short period of time before the attempt in order to supersaturate the blood. The divers who do these sorts of things can supposedly control their biological oxygen demand. Not sure if that's the right term. Uh, blah, blah, blah. By habituating themselves to higher levels of CO2 than most people and relaxing to such an extreme level so as to dramatically reduce their heart rate and blood pressure. I have no idea if tapirs and hippos do an hour of of yoga so that they can walk on the bottom of rivers, but I hope that clears up your ideas about humans who voluntarily submerge themselves to extreme depths. Now, I'm thinking that Anonymous has done a little bit more homework on this subject than I had. So I'm very grateful for those thoughts. That's really interesting stuff. Yes, I think that the notion of using humans as an analogue for tapirs and hippos is not <laughs> particularly good. Well, for starters, freedivers, they swim downwards, don't they? And they can yeah. wear weights. So, yeah. And they, they pack their bodies with super-saturated oxygen and uh, yeah. uh, they uh, wear special goggles and, and yeah, neoprene suits. And I, I saw a documentary about someone training to be a freediver and uh, about, about a bit where they were just trying to, you know, rem- keep their face fully... S- submersed Submer- submersed is that the right word submerged. whatever submerged. what's su- submerged yeah, but there's a thing called submersion uh, anyway they were putting their face in the water and um, yeah just trying really hard to get their uh, heart rate down to obviously reduce oxygen consumption and uh, and that was just the struggle it was this this guy he was at, he was able to do it long enough that he passed out which uh, ordinarily wouldn't be to your advantage in a survival situation, <laughs> being in the water. But um, but of course, your heart rate does naturally slow down anyway. The this thing called the mammalian diving reflex, um, which is an interesting and curious thing. Yeah, you know, as, been... as we know, there's nothing to slow your heart rate down like being in a dangerous situation, telling yourself <laughs> to keep calm. <laughs> I won't die. I won't die. I won't die. <laughs> um, yeah, the aquatic ape hypothesis used the mammalian diving reflex to support the idea that, well, that's evidence for aquatic adaptation in humans, the fact that we have a, a diving reflex. Ah, people are calm in the water. They, their heart rate slows down. Yeah. It's also true of cats, rabbits, pigs, basically everything. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> Not true of me. 
You don't have a mammalian diving reflex? I don't think so. Well, it's, it's swamped by the vague panic of being in the water. <laughs> Aren't you proficient in the water? Reasonably so, yes. Doesn't stop me from panicking a bit. I oh. think, I sort of think, yeah. I have to swim to stay afloat, so... I've got some sound effects for that. Yeah. Oh, that's... <laughs> um, that's lovely. My favourite my favorite aquatic ape stuff is the swimming baby myth. <laughs> so, so the books by Elaine Morgan say how if you chuck a baby in a swimming pool... Even even when a baby is born, okay, pops out of the mother, you know, as they do, right out, yeah. and painless, <laughs> Lovely sound easy, effects. quick, and uh, toss it in a swimming pool or even in a bath, whatever, and aquatic baby paddles underwater. So, ah, water yeah. babies, that's why. Proof that humans are aquatic. What they don't tell you is, yeah, babies are great at swimming <laughs> underwater, but when it comes to the bit of the surface, like where you need to breathe, nah, they're not so good at that. No. <laughs> in front, they can't even lift their faces <laughs> above the water. So babies are expert drowners. <laughs> yeah, not expert they, they drown calmly. Because <laughs> <laughs> all those photographs and films of swimming babies, the babies are under the water. They don't go up to the surface and, you know, they don't. So going off a tangent here. Okay, so, well, and there, and that does bring us to the end of follow-up, doesn't it? It does. Breath holds, yeah. right? So, yeah, that's that's cool stuff. I like that. Right now, I've lost the agenda because I'm so stupid. I've only right. Got, well, um, I'll read it out. News from the world of Darren and John, and we've got the Shanklin Croc. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I wrote about this on Tetrapod Zoology myself and uh, a list of um, uh, co-authors recently published a paper in a special issue of Biological Journal of the Linnaean Society, <clears throat> devoted to a conference that we held last year. No, not last year. I, I, I don't know when it was. A conference, <laughs> a conference maybe even a couple of years ago uh, held at University of Southampton that was about Lower Cretaceous stuff in Western Europe and the similar-aged Lower Cretaceous stuff in China. So it was the Weald and Yehol meeting, it was called. Um, this special volume... Myself, Mark Young, Lorna Steele, David Foffer, John Tennant. We have uh, got a paper in there on uh, Crapasuchus um, <laughs> Gardneri, as it's become known. It doesn't. It's a, a taxon that we haven't named, but it's a, a new crocodiliform, so crocodilian from. Um, the lower Cretaceous of the Isle of Wight from the Shanklin region, those of you who know the Isle of Wight, well, from Shanklin even, and it's represented by a chunk of lower jaw that's pretty big, yeah, it's about 11 centimetres long, I think, and no, 13 centimetres long, and it was found in the 1850s or 60s, misidentified for a long time as a pliosaur, but um, it's, it's, a, it's a peculiar crocodile form because the configuration of the, the way the teeth are arranged... There's like one really big tooth at the tip of the, well, there's this two at the tip of the lower jaw pointing forwards. The tooth sockets are empty, but, you know, they're obviously where these big teeth in life. And uh, <clears throat> then there's a number of smaller alveoli, smaller tooth sockets behind that. And it seems to be an early member of this group of crocodiliforms called dirosaurids, or it's close to the dirosaurids. Dirosaurids are mostly a latest Cretaceous and paleogene thing, as in around from, say, you know, 70 million to like, you know, 40 million years ago, that sort of time frame. Um, so this may shed light on the origins of dirosaurids, this important and 
partially oceanic and also estuarine dwelling crocodiliform clade and uh, um, yeah so it sort of maybe helps add some extra information on the origins of dirosaurids there's a like there's a lengthy Ted Zoo article about it. <coughs> Shanklin Croc and the dawn of the Tethysugian radiation. Yeah, this first tooth is really big. Must do you think it would have looked funny in real life? Yeah, I do think it would look funny. I mean, um, in general, when you have like big projecting lower jaw teeth in crocs, you have big opposing uh, upper jaw teeth as well. So, yeah, I do think we should arrange. Uh, we should imagine some sort of arrangement of like big caniniform teeth but just at the tip mm. of the premaxilla and dentary so there is actually one life reconstruction of this creature uh, produced by vladimir dinets who works on living crocs uh this i shared it on facebook i don't know if i put it anywhere else but um, i'll put it on tetsu uh when i do the um review of the year in in january but um <laughs> yeah he is it's kind of like a cartoon he, he did it as a joke mm. he's sort of shown this thing Leaping out of the water and spearing a pterosaur <laughs> with with these teeth. So, uh, and this is one of those fossils where this is without doubt a new taxon, right? We don't have anything like this, and it's got diagnostic features, and it's from a time and a place where you know there's no other animal that could it could be referred to. But because it's just a chunk of jaw, the decision was made in the paper not to name it. So. Um, <clears throat> and you know there's arguments pro and con as to whether that's a good thing or not uh, some people say that's the wise appropriate choice because you know what what if you find a really distinctive i don't know hind limb or tail or whatever in the same rock layer what then and what if you find a complete one but it's lacking the this the lack in the lower jaw and all these sorts of problems uh, yeah well we've discussed this many times yeah it's, it's a tricky we have. thing yeah. Well, not yeah, and the yeah, the taxonomy yeah. based on scraps, absolutely yes. Yeah, yeah. I I kind of think you know if you find something diagnostic and you think it's something new, I kind of think you should name it. But partly, I think that not because I kind of think you should for partly for bookkeeping reasons because um, people tend to forget stuff that isn't named. It's like yeah. giving it a name. Giving it a name doesn't make any difference, okay? It doesn't doesn't make any difference whether we name this specimen or not. Whether we're going to call it Shanklin crocodiliform or Shanklinosuchus or whatever. Doesn't I thought matter. You're going to call it Crapasuchus. Or Crapasuchus. Doesn't <laughs> doesn't matter one bit. It doesn't make any difference in the grand scheme of things. But giving it a name does force people to have to write about it because when they compile those lists mm. people are always compiling lists of which taxa we're going to include in our analysis and which taxa are relevant to this period of time and this region of the geographical region if it's got a name they have to list it whereas if it doesn't have a name they often, they don't have to list it so do you see what I mean as a kind of like just a convenience I do and I memory jogger and I yeah I agree with that I think What's a bit tricky is that the no, there's the notion of a diagnosis, right? In that it might you might think it's diagnostic to a species, whereas in fact it turns out that it's not diagnostic to a species at all. When more material turns up, it turns out you've actually got a clade, um, and therefore the original specimen you can't tell what it comes from, right? You, it mm. might be any one of several different taxa now. Um, I think that's where a lot of the messes have come in, yeah. isn't it? Um, but, yeah, I, th- 
I don't know. I think there's a problem. There's a problem with the notion of diagnosis, um, which I think yeah. maybe we need to just well, all to of get this, around somehow. All of this was discussed in the comments of that article. For, so, for those who are interested, do do read the comments on that article. Um, basically, all the different arguments that that have come up were were, were touched on there. I mean, what, what you just referred to what's known as taxonomic obsolescence, which is the idea that you know someone finds a, a fragment, a chunk of vertebra, a chunk of jaw, or a single vertebra, or something, and they name it, and then it turns out that 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 thing is diagnostic. There are diagnostic characters that pertain to the specimen, but they're not unique to the species. It turns out that yeah, they're true of like a whole group of organisms that maybe tens or twenty or hundreds or even thousands of species. It's, it turns out that the diagnostic features are yeah. As we discover more stuff, we realise later on that uh, the the features concerned are not specific to small subset, but to a yeah, a large, a large subset, and that only comes as you uh, as you as you discover more stuff. But it means that the original things you attach the name to, they end up being just indeterminate fragments of an unknown member of a group that contains a huge number of species. In which case, now they're useless. They weren't mm. useless at the start. So, again, how does that link with a specimen like Crapasuchus, the Shanklin croc? It's like if we were to name it now. It wouldn't be useless, but in like hypothetically a hundred years, when there's several tags that have got the same sets of features, um, well, it'll be useless then. So, would we be, would would we be making a mess for people in the future if we named it now? Um, well, no, because then you just demote it. I think. Well, it's a it's a slight mess, but I think that's unavoidable, isn't it? Um, I yeah. I think from in retrospect it looks like all this stu- a lot of this stuff shouldn't have been named but if it was never named I, you know I don't know whether we'd be able to build on the history as we have I, right I think I think that's right yeah build yeah it's the building on it it's, you can't predict that you know you can't yeah. you can't future proof a uh, the naming of a taxon and some things so. that are named on scraps are probably still good, right? Like yeah. we never found another bunch of things like that, and therefore it was right. It was diagnostic to a specific enough thing. But uh, this is the whole problem with rank-based taxonomy. You know, it's, you're just going to get into messes like this, right? So, anything more on the Shanklin croc? No, that'll do. No, no, no. Got to stop there, or otherwise right, just yeah. tangent. Uh, tangent. Crocodiliforms. And they're part of a more inclusive clade called crocodilomorphs. There is a kind of aim on Tetsu to get through the bulk of the diversity. And I keep on coming back to it and talking about the fact that, oh, there's this diversity and I need to cover these and these and these groups. And, well, it's all down to time. Um, there's a... <clears throat> Yeah, there's 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 a lot there's a lot to do. Most of most of which is written. I have written a lot of these because uh, the book, the big vertebrate book that Darren is doing, is um. That sounds a bit weird referring to myself in the. Yeah, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> Darren, Darren thinks. Bob Dole thinks. Listen. Uh, uh, um. <laughs> oh, Bob Dole doesn't like this. Um, that was a terrible <laughs> accent, but yeah. <laughs> For the book, I have obviously written about all the groups, but um, but compiling the sorts of illustrations that, that I want to use in blog articles takes a while. I haven't haven't done that, so really want to talk about like the Notosugians, uh, you know, the Sebikosugians and whatnot. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. Here we are going off at a tangent. Yeah. So this, those those of you who don't know, living crocodiles, alligators, and gharials are pretty much samey, and they are the tip of the iceberg in terms of the diversity of fossil crocodilomorphs. So the 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 Mesozoic and the uh, Cenozoic. There's numerous lineages of exciting crocodile, alligator, and gharial-like croc line archosaurs that are not crocodiles, alligators, or gharials, but they're you know part of the same major clade. Okay, right. Multi-tuberculates. Uh, uh, multi- well, multi-tuberculates. I can't talk about this too much because uh, myself and uh, my colleagues, you know, I work with a bunch of people on stuff from Romania, the latest Cretaceous of Romania, um, Transylvania in Romania. Um, we, um, yeah, we, we've we've done lots of work on dinosaurs, we've done lots of work on uh, pterosaurs, but we work on the other groups that we find there as well. So we published a paper a couple of weeks ago on the re-identification of an alleged pterosaur from the same region of Transylvania, which wasn't a, t- uh, wasn't a pterosaur at all, it was a fragment of turtle shell uh, a specimen of a really well known fossil turtle called Calicobotian Bayesidae, everybody's favourite fossil turtle um, spoke about that a couple of episodes back didn't I on the, on the podcast, mm-hmm. but we also have some sexy news from the world of lizards and crocodiliforms and, uh, and mammals, so multi-tuberculates are this important group of mammals that were diverse and geographically widespread uh, in the Cretaceous. They made it across the Cretaceous-Paleogene boundary, KPG boundary. Mm. (laughs) How's it going with the sales of that poster, John? (laughs) Oh, millions and millions. Sold millions. It's taking off. MC Extinction, man. MC Extinction. John, John, John Leather... Leather called leather charge to have the the KPG event renamed the MC stop MC time. Anyway, multi-tuberculates <laughs> persisted across the KPG boundary and were diverse during the Paleocene and Eocene. I think there might be some that persisted in the Oligocene, but whatever. Um, and they're kind of like rodenty type things, like voley, hamstery, ratty type things. Oh. Yeah, so. Uh, so we got some really thrilling news on them from uh, from Romania because uh, wow duh. no I, I, okay uh, there's some stuff I can say which is basically there's a group of multi-tuberculates uh, there's there's like a major clade within multi-tuberculates called Simolodonta which is like the more sort of advanced you know, in quotes advanced ones the ones that are more rodenty like the ones with the more obvious. Uh, sort of rodent-like paired incisiform dentition and tend to have like big blade-like lower premolars. Multituberculous, they're, they're, that name means many tubercles because their teeth look kind of like schematic Lego bricks, you know, like multiple rows of cusps. And within Somalodonta, there's this uniquely European uh, group called the Cogionids and it's People have described enough cogionids from this Romanian latest Cretaceous assemblage that I work on that it seems there might be island endemic radiations of cogionid multiverculates. So, and again, I'll stop there because I, wa- I want to say more. But, but um, everybody knows that 
this thing called Hatzeg Island. I've discussed this several times on the podcast already. Hatzeg Island, latest creatures remain here. There's the giant pterosaurs. There's weird, small dwarf dinosaurs. Uh, well, what about the little animals? You know, you've got to expect there to be island endemicity in them as well. And uh, that's kind of where we're going with a new study, which, uh, well, we'll see how it goes. We'll come back to that story. And obviously, I'll be covering on Tetsu because I haven't covered multi-diverculus. I really should at some mm. stage because they're so happening. Mm. Right. There's currently, there's, yeah. I should just, just say one more thing that uh, oh. you may, there's, there's, there's currently a, so people have like run out of dinosaurs. There's like, there's, there's no more dinosaur stuff. So all of a sudden, all the people that used to work on dinosaurs, and this doesn't include me because I obviously haven't always been just dinosaurs, they're now starting to jump on like crocodiliforms and turtles and lizards and metazoic mammals. Yeah. Sort of get that impression. You look at, you know, a while, a while back, some of the main publication venues for vertebrate paleontological studies like Journal of Vertebrate Paleontology, every single, it was like, you know, if there's 40 papers in an issue, 25 of them would be dinosaur papers. Now it's back to like two or three of dinosaur papers and the rest is all mammals, lizards, frogs, turtles, fish, because... Uh, yeah, well, I think there was, a, there was an argument that for a long time dinosaurs are understudied, right? Which sounds crazy, but I think they were, especially considering how little, how different they are in many respects and how little we know about how they work. So there needed to be a great push of bringing it back up to speed with other things, and maybe we have now, maybe we've got to the stage where we understand dinosaurs. Well, I also think... In a more even fashion with these other... Uh, yes, animals. I th- I think that in keeping with the you know, dinosaurs have have a status across many areas of uh, human interest as kind of like gateway drugs. It's like you know people often get interested, you know, young people, kids get interested in science because of an interest in you know space rockets and dinosaurs that sort of thing. And I think that this this also goes for the world of big person science, as in like people think. How could I study extinction rates over time? I'll have to collect a huge, you know, the diversity data for you know hundreds of species and looking at you know loads of graphs and stuff. Well, how about if I do that with dinosaurs? Wouldn't that be really cool? Yeah, I'll do that with dinosaurs. So someone does does that with dinosaurs, and then it's like, how would animals? Someone else thinks, how do animals actually conduct stresses through their skulls when they're biting? Wouldn't it be really cool to do that on dinosaurs? Yeah, I do that on dinosaurs. And wouldn't it be cool if we knew how animals could run? based on how big their muscles were. I'll do that on dinosaurs, because dinosaurs are really cool. So I think many key, like, um, sort of new research angles were start- that were initiated with dinosaurs, because that guarantees people pay attention, because everybody, you know, even uh, non-sciencey people, just ordinary people that read newspapers or whatever... They'll whatever see, ordinary people whatever they do when they're watching football and eating <laughs> chips or whatever they're like uh, oh, it's got a dinosaur in it I'll read that or I'll look at that for a couple of seconds before I go back to watching EastEnders or whatever <laughs> then um, they, they so so use dinosaurs dinosaurs are used as a as like a the first step on the the ladder to getting something done yes and of course once everybody's then done it on dinosaurs it's like well couldn't you someone else says hmm, couldn't you apply that same method to frogs it's like, yeah, frogs, that's actually where all the action is. So, you know, so, so I think that's what's happened. It's like dinosaurs have led the way in terms of applying new techniques, the application of new technology, all these things. Dinosaurs have led the way, partly because, not entirely because, partly because they're big and sexy and everyone knows what they are. 
Mm. Whereas you couldn't... Yeah. Sorry, go on. I think there's another effect which is related, is that dinosaurs are an extreme, right? So if you're trying to understand how they could do something so extreme, you start looking at their biomechanics or whatever more closely, and then you realise, oh, wait a second, we don't know how this works in ordinary animals. And so you realise you have to chase the research down into... um, That is very true. Yeah. Well, I've said that, I have said that on Tetrawood's Zoology, that there seems to be, for the last, like, probably going on for like a decade now, but there has been like a, a kind of renaissance in um, just like standard anatomy, like CT scanning and x-raying and describing, you know, uh, the way bones articulate and, and how joints function in all kinds of animals. And partly that's been led, well, that's been dominated by paleontologists. And often people working on dinosaurs, not just dinosaurs, on mammals and fish and stuff as well. But partly because paleontologists think that, oh, let's study how, you know, knees work in fossil camels or dinosaurs. And so, hold on, nobody's ever studied knees in anything, (laughs) apart from humans and domestic dogs or whatever. So I think paleontologists have often led led, uh, this sort of revolution here. But what you're saying about dinosaurs being extreme, that's true. But, hey, frogs. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> frogs are are extreme actually aren't they they're very odd animals very uh modified they are nuts they're yeah. they're like among the most modified of all tetrapods but um sorry that was just me being silly that would be going off on a tangent wouldn't it talking yeah. about yeah frog no no ribs in most frogs yeah seven i think it's like seven to nine maybe it's nine to eleven vertebrae in total but obviously no tail the pelvis is basically this U-shaped thing with like a rod in the middle called Eurostyle, which you would look at and assume it's modified fused vertebrae, but it's not. It's like a, um, it's part of the um, actual, oh, what's the name of the structure around the spinal cord? Uh, the sheath. The, uh, it's kind of like an ossified sheath around the spinal cord that forms this structure called the Eurostyle. And then extra limb segments because of due to elongation of foot bones and fusion of tibia and fibula, and fusion of radius and ulna, and weird stuff with the fingers, frame shift in the hands, and lack of a mandibular dentition apart from one genus of marsupial tree frog, uh, and so on and so forth. Yeah, they're pretty weird. Um, news from the, We're still on news from the world of Darren and John. Ted Wiki. Right. So... Let me just find it. Uh, so, our good friend Cameron McCormick has initiated the Tetrapod Zoology Wiki project. Partly created out of um, frustration to do with <laughs> how lame the uh, um, interface is at Scientific American. You, know, you try and search for stuff, it's just useless. No offence, Scientific American, but it is. Um, yeah, Cameron has started Tetsu Wiki. And that's at wiki.tetsu.com. And I'm just looking at the article on Permian bears. Take a drink. <coughs> um, yeah, so so the aim here is basically to have everything from the Tetsuverse archived. Not ar- archived, that's the wrong word, but you know, linked to and... Uh, well, it's a wiki, so there's little bits of information and there's links. And Obviously, this is like any wiki. It's a crowdsourced thing. So Cameron has done a lot, but there's a lot more left to do. So um, 
the sections holdings of the Tetsu Media Empire. There's there's breakdowns for versions one, two, three. Also the podcast. Affiliated Realms, Tetsu Time, Tetsu Comic, Tetsu Topics, Long Running Series, Cryptozoology, Bizarre Hypotheses, Fish. <laughs> That's not a Tetsu Topic. <laughs> I think it's kind of a joke, though, because they're <laughs> avoided. Tetsu Customs, and under the end of this, he's got Drinking Game, <laughs> Permian Bears, 23 Comments, Gorgonopsians and Ropens, <laughs> April Fool's Day, Absurdly Long Titles, that might be recently added. Yeah, so... So do, if you're interested in Tetrapod's world, you currently host the Scientific American, go and check it out. So it means the patented Keezy Nicklin drinking game, I can have that open all the time. There's, there's, oh my god, there's 37 items in the Tetsu drinking game. Uh, I should be drinking a lot more according to the, uh, Darren gets his name wrong. Have I ever gotten my name wrong? <laughs> yeah, you did once. Okay, so now welcome to the next part of the show called News from the World of News. So, have you heard, first of all, that there is... Now, how often would you think new large animal species are discovered in the world? Once a century. Something like once a century. So you'll be surprised to find that a team of mammalogists led by Mario Coswell have discovered a new tapir in Brazil called Tapirus cabamani. It was originally discovered in 1912 by Teddy Roosevelt, who once <laughs> rode a moose across a river, shot one. It's in the American Museum of Natural History. This tapir is the smallest of the tapirs, Tapirus cabamani. Uh, I've written down Dinochirus. Yeah. But again... Well, do you want to say anything first? Because you've painted some Dinochiruses. Yeah, but I don't really have all that much to say. I don't know. Have you got it's, things to say about Dinochirus? Well, of course. I could, te- I could talk at length about Dinochirus, but the problem is, as with Spinosaurus, it's when these things are out, and it's been out for a while, for a while I feel like, well, I don't want to talk about it because... I've had it up to here with Dinochirus. All I've mm. heard is Dinochirus, Dinochirus, Dinochirus. It's like, mm. I'm not going to not gonna have anything new to say that people haven't heard already. However, that's Well, no, much... that's not true, because a lot of Tetsu listeners don't even follow the dinosaur. I was just about to say that. I was going to say that's the same with the blog. I think that, oh, everyone's heard this, and it turns out that if you work on, I don't know, the conservation of water birds or whatever, you might not even be aware of Dinochirus. So there's a giant dinosaur. I do have some special inside information on Dinochirus, of course. Okay, so during the 1970s, I haven't done any, any homework on this, so I'm probably going to get lots of things wrong. But I believe it was a joint Polish-Mongolian research team in the Gobi Desert found uh, the forelimbs, the complete forelimbs, together with the part of the pectoral girdle and some ribs of a giant theropod. They called it Dinochirus, which means terrible hand. And it's known from these this pair of 2.4 or so, 2.4, 2.8 metres, can't remember, maybe 2.4 metres long, these arms, three-fingered hands, and many people said early on that this thing looks like an ostrich dinosaur, an ornithomimosaur. It's probably a giant ornithomimosaur, but of course other people, they, it was originally suggested in the descriptive paper to be a megalosaur-type theropod, so imagine to be like a big predator but with long arms. So there have been a few reconstructions over the years that have shown it as being kind of, you know, tyrannosaur or allosaur-shaped, just with really, really long arms. 
other well, people. Also, saying, yeah, like really, really giant too, right? Let's just extrapolate this up. Let's just put <laughs> these on an Allosaurus sort of proportioned animal, and oh my god, it's 150 tons. <laughs> it's the biggest theropod ever. Um, well, it turns out that when they found those arms, they didn't just find the arms; they found like basically the whole thing. So they've they've had the whole thing all along. Uh, but that's I can't tell that story because the story that's come out this is pretty similar in some aspects to the Spinosaurus story. Mm. The story that's come out is oh we just found this brand new thing. Um, so they've they've got the they've got the complete thing they've got the complete skull the whole of the skeleton. It's a, it's a giant ornithomimosaur. Wouldn't have looked tremendously different from other ostrich dinosaurs or ornithomimosaurs apart from has a hump, tall neural spines. Yeah, on the dorsal vertebrae it's got short proportionally short and stocky feet it's got weirdly shaped claws with like sort of weird kind of like sub rectangular nubbins in the middle of the claws um it's got a very long snout with a kind of semi spatula end kind of like a duckbill dinosaur sort of a spoonbill thing going on there and stomach contents gastroliths a large number of gastroliths that's stones that it swallowed as well as fish remains well gastroliths are meant to indicate uh, a herbivorous diet because generally speaking if animals swallow stones that's for mashing up plants but fish now they're technically not plants so it's probably <laughs> they're pretty close though aren't they <laughs> no comment um, yeah so it seems to have been a mega omnivore basically eating whatever it wanted and nobody's done any sort of really stupid crazy uh, speculations yet, like all the gastrolists were there to weigh it down, act as ballast so it could wade around on the bottom of, of lakes. <laughs> I've seen that explored in one artistic reconstruction. But um, so Dinocar is standing from a complete skeleton, and it looks weird. And it's really weird that it's published, you know, a short time after Spinosaurus, and Spinosaurus also looking really weird. People are saying, "Ooh, what's next?" Therizinosaurus is probably next because there's unpublished stuff of that which shows that it looks super weird as well. Not like it does in reconstructions. And there's more news to come on Dinochirus. There's mm-hmm. more stuff to come. I can't talk about that. Going back um, to the original, like just the original bit we knew, the arms and why it wasn't just universally, obviously considered to be an ornithomimid, although that turned out to be correct, is that it does differ somewhat just looking at it. It does it's ornithomimosaur, more... not ornithomimid. Yeah, sorry, ornithomimosaur. Oh my god, why'd they put saw at the end of that? That's just terrible. Because ornithomimids are a subclade. I know, I know. Of a more inclusive group. I, I understand, I understand how that works. But just you, they just stuck saw on the end of there. Just, it's, it's as bad as uh, Oviraptorosaur. Well, it's it was worst. done at the same time as that, oh, to, make, to make them equal level infra-orders within oh, anyway, sub-order. Okay. Yeah. So, ornithomimy things... Mm. Is that it, its claws were much more curved, and it it was oh, it's much more robust as well. But it doesn't look like a typical ornithomimosaur. No, just bigger. It it does have some differences, which is what the argument was about, I believe. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because uh, the other ornithomimosaurs they tend to have slender, elongate, narrow. Claws, hand claws, for example, whereas its hand claws are relatively broad, yeah, far shorter, more curved, yeah, which is yeah. kind of what you said. So um, they don't look like the claws of a super raptorial predator. It's not, this isn't, you know, the suggestion that it was that these claws are for like ripping sauropod bellies out, which of course has been suggested on occasion. Mm. 
yeah, is not supported by the claw form, so far as we can tell. Assuming, of course, that the keratinous claw is a similar shape to the to bony claw, which is a reasonable extrapolation. Um, I'm sure we've we, we spoken about the difference between bony claws and the overlying keratinous sheath. I don't claw. think we have. Because... So, so if you have the bony core of a of a um, claw, well, in life that's extended in length by the keratin sheath. But in fossils, you generally don't have the keratin sheath; you only have the bony thing. So, the problem is that there are some living animals where, for the benefit again of John and no one else, <laughs> there are some living animals where the keratinous sheath substantially enlarges the claw relative to the shape of the bony claw. You see what I did there? Yeah. yeah. So I showed the keratin sheath as being much larger than the bony claw. But there are other animals where the keratin sheath fits quite tightly onto the bony claw. And this may have been the case in some dinosaurs. And I forget why I think that. Um, There's there's a reason. There's a fossil that (laughs) indicates... I've definitely written about it on Tetzu because in the I published a paper with um, Charlotte Miller, Dave Hone, Emily Rayfield, and um, uh, Alexander Byrne Jeffrey, and that was to do with uh, deter- aiming to determine mode of life through claw shape. And in some of the fossil animals, we couldn't measure the bony claw. The, sorry, we couldn't measure the, the true claw, like the soft tissue claw, because we didn't have it. Only had the bony one. But in some cases, that's okay because the bony claw can still be used as a proxy for the actual true condition of the uh, the claw shape in life. So, so, but whatever, whatever condition Dinochirus had, even with these caveats in mind, it doesn't seem that it had you know laterally compressed cat-like sort of needle-tipped claws that were the, the sort you need to be ripping into prey. They're relatively broad and relatively short. Suggesting that it's not whatever it was, known to the arms alone, it wasn't wasn't uh, yeah. yeah a raptorial super predator. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So enough on Dinochirus. Well, one more thing: the tail. Yeah. You know, so you got a lot of flack from a couple of people who we won't mention about not I showing it was just one. But anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> for not showing a um some something weird going on with the feathers at the tail tip, because. Dinochirus has the the vertebrae at the, the. Sorry, was that some kind of sign language? No, no, no. Oh, you're no. just scratching yourself. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Dinochirus has a bunch of fused, <laughs> fused vertebrae at the tail tip, and in the paper they describe they is Lee et al. They uh, they describe they they refer to this structure as a pygostyle. Pygostyle is the name for the is the name for the blade shaped, laterally compressed structure present in the tail of uh, many birds, not all birds, many birds, living birds, and obviously forms the anchor site for the large, the rectrices, the large tail, the, 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 the feathers that form tail fan. So by calling the structure a pygostyle, the authors are implying that, like modern birds, Dinochirus had some sort of rectricial fan, some sort of mm. tail fan. Um, but no, I think, I, think, I think it's crap. So there's a bunch of, like, dinosaurs with reasonably long tails that have got fused vertebrae at the tail tip and they've been called pygostyles but they probably shouldn't be called pygostyles they should probably just be called fused masses of 
caudal vertebrae. Yeah. Because they don't look anything like the structures that we properly call pygostyles. Just because you find a bunch of fused tail vertebrae. Now, I need to check here, but I'm pretty sure that the term pygostyle doesn't just apply to any set, any bunch of fused tail vertebrae. Otherwise, you know, hyenas and baboons and stuff have got pygostyles, and I don't think they have. Um, I think it refers specifically to this unusual, deep, laterally compressed, blade-like structure present in uh, a subset of birds, not in all birds. So if you find fused tail vertebrae in a dinosaur like Dinocarus, it doesn't look like it's necessarily anything to do with feathers. I'm not really sure that it is. So, Yeah, it could be, but, I mean, uh, the the relation is not one-to-one anyway, so... No. Um, yeah. So basically, people shouldn't call these things Bygostyles? Not, no. Well, yeah, I suppose not. I think they shouldn't, because if it was in, like yeah. I say, if it was in a sauropod, you know, there are sauropods with fused tail vertebrae and... Indeed, yeah. And chylosaurs and... Yeah. And we call them clubs. Why not call, why not call it a club? <laughs> yeah, well, it, um, but even without tail clubs, there's, yeah. you just get like masses of normal tail vertebrae that are fused together. Mm. So, um, yeah. So, so don't call it a pike style and don't go assuming that it definitely means, you know, we know that ostrich dinosaurs are feathered, which is another thing. What about the reconstructions that have appeared online that show Dinochirus either as sparsely feathered in yeah. ye olde style or naked skinned? Yeah. So... Matt Martin Nyuk has addressed this, hasn't he? He he did a, uh, an article at Dinogos lately, which was about... Are you picking up any of that background noise? No. No, good. Um, there was an article at Dinogos where, where Matt... I need to take a drink because I'm sure I pronounced his name incorrectly. <laughs> Matt. It's Mart. <laughs> Mart. <laughs> Mark um, <laughs> spoke about uh, the problem, a thing that I have addressed a couple of times on Tetsu, mentioned it every now and again, the fact that people employed as consultants don't know the first thing about life appearance of animals, which is the thing they're being paid to be consultants for. Yes. So so there's a there's like a toy of a therizinosaur, and it's naked, well it's not naked skin, it's scaly skinned, and apparently, the artist who made it. <laughs> Sorry, there's a there's a fly. Can you hear it on the thing? Uh, no, not yet. Anyway, it's, dri- it's, it's quite big and it's driving me <laughs> crazy. Yeah, <laughs> a fly. Um, it's too cold for you, fly. They are annoying when they're in the house, and and yeah, they do tend to survive the winters now. A lot of them. Um. <sighs> Sorry. Oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So apparently, the expert consultant told the artist. That because this is a big animal, it wouldn't be feathered. It's only the little ones that are feathered. Mm. So, and it's like, what, well, Matt says this in his article. This is a dino goss. We spoke about Matt before, didn't we? Because of his new book, Beasts yeah. of Antiquity, the Stem Birds of the Solnhofen book. Um, what what kind of a of an expert are you if you're telling artists that I put it to you, sir slash madam, whatever that. You don't know what the hell you're talking about, and that's what Matt said. And uh, yeah, we're seeing the same thing with Dinochirus. We're seeing people people give it people give it no feathers or reduced amount of feathering. Um, yeah, which I mean, it's possible, but 
it shouldn't be the assumption, which seems to be the case with lots and lots of the pitches, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's this weird... Also, especially when you're advising, right, a experienced paleo artist, which Michael Skrepnik is, you just... You, you don't... I mean, he's going to know more than most paleontologists are. Um, that. So, Eleanor Kish died recently. We're talking in November 2014 right now. And... I think she was. I think she was eighty nine. Mm. Um, <clears throat> now, what, what what you might have things you want to say about Anakish. What I would say very briefly is is this is someone who myself and you know many other people often been very critical of her the look of her dinosaurs because they are these weird shrink wrapped things with like you know bones sticking out all over the place and the even like herbivores with. Deep sunken bellies, something they, they physically can't have because they've got big guts. I think there were conspicuous anatomical problems with the dinosaurs. But I should have said that last rather than first, because in a way, you can't help but look at these things and, ju- and, and judge them based on the accuracy of the dinosaurs. But the, the technical like quality of her paintings, the look of her animals, you know, skin texture, the environment, she was, she was one of the best. And Although she did kind of change her style in later years, during the 1980s, she kind of switched to a sort of almost sort of comic book style that, that I'm not, not so keen on. Her classic stuff from the 70s and 80s, much of which was done with in conjunction with paleontologist Dale Russell, is just awesome. The scenes are incredible. And I think she's a good example of someone who was kind of, with all due respect to Dale Russell, she was basically led to do weird-looking dinosaurs, bad-looking dinosaurs, because she was given bad advice by a paleontologist. So, I don't, I don't know. I, I know that she worked closely with Russell. You know, there's an article that he wrote in the Dinosaurs Past and Present Volume 1 um, book, which is by him, but it's about his working w- with her. And he seems to have given her lots of ideas about what dinosaurs should have looked like in life, which she then depicted, and, and they're just, they're just flat-out wrong, and they look wrong. But, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, I think she was working under, you know, fairly close sort of supervision, uh, which is a little unusual these days, actually, that um, Dale Russell was giving her direction on how to produce these things. And if you actually, especially her classic work from the 80s, 70s and 80s, the skeletons fit in, you know, there was quite, she did quite a lot of (laughs) preparation, Um, and like her apatosaurus, uh, moonlit apatosaurus scenes, there's photos of her working on, you know, models of the skeletons and overlaying flesh, (laughs) nowhere near enough, Um, and I, I don't, I don't, I still don't really understand what Dale Russell was thinking, um, in terms of giving the dinosaurs so little flesh. Mm. Um, but I think it mainly did come from him. Yeah. But I would say, yeah, in terms of ha- of painting, Eleanor Kish is, I would say, close to the best. Uh, I'm a big fan of Doug Henderson's technique as well. Um, uh, but Eleanor Kish is, is really in the same league. It's really quite amazingly good. Um, her, you know, <laughs> look at her paintings for her trees and her her rocks and her uh, 
water and and and, and it's, it's all amazing stuff. I mean, I pretty much taught myself how to paint by looking at Eleanor Kish work. Uh mm. because it's technically so so profession, proficient. It's not just it's not just the technique. I mean, people get a bit hung up on um technique and how realistic you can make something look. And she's not realistic in many ways. Um but it's more about composing a shot and what sorts of textures you put in and what sorts of details you put in and she's got an amazing number of little details in her paintings and stuff and it's a, they're, they're um, incredible pieces of work it is <laughs> it is a shame that the dinosaurs are so mm. um, odd and they're odd in a way a unique way I don't think there is another um, you know they're not classic 70s or 80s dinosaurs, even you know old style. They're not like mm. that at all. They're like a completely alternative stream yes. of super skinny dinosaurs, which is 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 strange. But um, yeah. No, I, 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 I mean, I think it, it can't bemoan, bemoan this too much because a lot of stuff has changed anyway. So they'd be inaccurate in any case, especially you know feathered theropods and all that. Even if she was working. Um, with <clears throat> the best knowledge, I think that they'd still be looking inaccurate these days. But still, yeah. Mm, mm. No, I I totally agree with you. And I would kind of say to people, yeah, when you look at these 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 pictures, see if you can kind of ignore the dinosaurs, because yeah, they're just amazing, amazing scenes. Yeah, she's outstanding. I'm just looking at Dale Russell's article here, there's a, and there's a lot where he's talking about feeding information to an artist. For example, he talks he talks in this article about photographing plants in exotic locations and that being yeah. used as you know, but but he doesn't he doesn't provide any specific sound bites on the look of the dinosaurs. But I do think pretty much all the ideas came from him. I mean, sprawling triceratops and you know weird faces on duck bills and the thing the fact that you can see things like the nubbin-like fifth toe on some animals, you know, a thing that's normally not shown because it's totally obscured. It, it'd be submerged in flesh. And the, the the key thing that I always, you know, as a child remember being the thing that I, allowed me to identify her pictures was the weird sort of finger-like projecting ischium that yes. she shows in lots of dinosaurs, which, I don't know, I, I, I always kind of always imagined it was some like little pink genital bits sticking out <laughs> into the tail which uh, I don't know if it was intended as that I think it's just meant to be bony but it always made it look as if she was drawing them with with weird genitalia but um, uh, <laughs> yeah uh, so so she'll be missed and uh, she is remembered with a great deal of affection and people really do love her work and uh, a very interesting phase in um, history of paleo arts yeah, I, I I would say it's sort of a a spur, if you like. It's it it was not followed up in terms of style. People haven't copied her style very much. Well, me maybe. Um. Uh, but and her dinosaurs were sort of a dead end. But that's as we yeah as we keep saying, it's it's probably more Dale Russell than her. Mm. Um, you can check out her work too. She's got got a website. Um, All right, Eli Kish. That's E L Y Kish K I. SH dot CA. Um, unfortunately, the website looks like it hasn't been updated for a number of years, so a lot of the pictures are quite small. They don't really do do the paintings justice. 
Our all. buddies at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. Ah, yes, that's actually a better place to find the work. Yeah, yeah. they've got. Uh, I'm looking here at an art, an article from January 2013, which is a sort of review of Dale Russell's book and Odyssey in Time of the Dinosaurs in North America, mm-hmm. which basically is one of the go-to places for Kish's paintings. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So her best work is in that in uh, Odyssey and Time, and. Dinosaurs Past and Present is it Volume One? It's Volume One, the blue yeah, one, the one the with the blue one, yeah. And so there's the there's lots and lots of paintings in both of those, and all of them are good. Mm. And you don't get any of the, as you say, the more cartoony ones, which I also don't really like nearly so yeah. much. Um. So there's there's none of those, but there's lots and lots of the really good ones. Yeah. I wonder if anybody... I'm not aware of anybody having written a kind of like biographical thing about her. I'd love to know... All, all these artists, I always want to know more about you know their inspirations and wh- what led them to develop their style. In the painting... Sorry, in the photograph you mentioned that shows her producing a, I don't know, 125th whatever scale Apatosaurus, you can see she's also got um, a model... African, uh, well, an elephant of some kind, and she's also looking at a photograph on the cover of Wildlife magazine of an elephant. And I sort of always want to know, you know, what inspires people? Which artists inspired them? And what did they look at when they were painting things? And yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a biography on um on that on website her, on her website, but uh, oh. I I would it's not so much about her inspiration. It's more what um, what she did. Uh, well. Yeah. I might write something. I'd like to. I think. Yeah, I, think. I mean, it's interesting to look at her website and look at um, her other work, which has nothing to do with dinosaurs or anything like that, because she was also a portrait painter and a wildlife painter and a landscape oh, was she? painter. Mm. Um, so, I mean, you can sort of tell this because of her strengths. Uh, yes. So she doesn't come from the more pure paleo art. <laughs> Tradition, which you can tell. You can tell when people have mostly looked at paleo art <laughs> yeah. and not other things. Other it's stuff is all style. spaceships and uh, <laughs> uh, scantily clad. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> I do find that funny when you see someone's portfolio and it's all... Uh, here's my, well, they're trying to sell themselves as like a serious artist of whatever subject. Let's say it's dinosaurs. And all their other stuff is basically soft porn <laughs> not, not spaceships or explosions <laughs> wow I can see you. oh, oh you were, you're a multifaceted complex individual with many interests um, I'm sure you'll know, you know who some of the sorts of people I have in mind uh, no John comment. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes. right so Elena Kish in memory R.O.P. all that um, yeah, so we're going to move on to the final section of the show. How long have we been talking for? Oh, hours an, an and age, hour and an hours. age. Oh, God, yeah. Now we come to the part of the show John likes to call... <clears throat> Cash for questions! <laughs> I have my volume down low today, so you don't hurt <laughs> me. Yeah. <clears throat> so we have a huge cash for question here from Daniel Hewitt. And the question is, Darren... You ready for this? Yes. What the hell is going on over there? Yeah, where do we start? Yeah. Well, well <laughs> having well, discussed I wanted... this at length, yes. Yes. What did you I want wanted? To... I wanted Scotland to be independent. Uh-huh. I'm not interested in UKIP. Bunch of idiots. 
Today was quite sunny. I went out for a walk with my camera in order to photograph birds. Uh-huh. They weren't playing. Because yesterday, I went out without my camera and saw lots of birds doing lots of very interesting things. So there was a herring gull mm-hmm. trying to raise some worms from the ground. Have you ever seen gulls do this? No. Well, probably, and haven't realised what they were doing. Well, you probably you probably would remember it. It's very weird. They 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 stand in the spot and they pump up and down with their legs. They pat the ground with their feet. It looks really comical. Yeah. And uh, the vibrations make worms come to the surface. And I've been talking about this with a couple of other people. And you know, it's not easy to find photographs of it. He says without doing any kind of checking whatsoever. Uh, and then there were like you know loads of crows having interesting fights and squabbles and stuff. And didn't have my camera on me, so went out this morning on the walk to school. And uh, took my good camera with me. That beeping and... sound is Darren looking at his camera. Oh, sorry, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's quite a nice shot, look. That's, oh, that's, uh, that's so... great for our listeners. <laughs> I can't see that. Um, but all the other pictures, they're just really useless. So. And also, look, I've drawn some little sauropods. Oh, this is, yeah. That's, that's very nice. Um, so that's not the answer to the question. Although oh. I suppose that is one answer. What the hell is going on over there? That yeah. pretty much sums it up. So we thought we'd do it in two parts. Um, and what we're going to talk about this time is Tetsu and the Tetsu verse and what it is. What the hell is going on with Tetsu, Darren? Well, Don't just tell me what's going on in the blog. Here's what I'm getting at. <laughs> okay, so there's sort of the traditional notion of science communication, right? where a bunch of scientists do a bunch of science and then some of them might tell some other people about it. And I don't think that's exactly what Tetsu is. I think it's a bit different. Yeah. I think it's a bit different. How do you think it's different? Um, well, how do you think it's different? <laughs> well, I think for a start, a lot of the audience is also scient- are also scientists. True. Or... They're interested enough in it that their knowledge is up there with scientists working in a closely related field, for example. And therefore, it's an extension of science itself. It's not communicating to people that know nothing about stuff like this. It is an infusion of science into a culture. Right? I like that description, yeah. I buy that. Um, and so this means that things are a bit different, right? So you're not looking... In traditional science communication, you're probably looking to get on the telly, on the radio, and compressing things down into tiny little understandable chunks so, so that people that know nothing about this stuff can understand a little bit about it. Whereas Tetsu more concerned with people who already have a fairly good knowledge of what's going on and going into much more depth. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the audience is tiny, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't you helping me out here. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I thought you knew where you were going with this. No, no. When I have seen, when I have, when I have um, read articles where people talk about what blogging is, they... Now, things have changed. I do, I do feel that things, things have changed within the last couple of years. I mean, blogging obviously is a very young thing anyway, but, but people generally don't really seem to describe... Their understanding of what blogging is doesn't really describe what Tetrapod Zoology is. And I don't mean Tetrapod Zoology is necessarily unique because there are you know, various other blogs do the same kind of thing. But people talk about blogging as if it's meant to be 
uh, it's either meant to be people talking about themselves and you know their their own adventures and that can be you know I made, I made a pie today or I watched some telly today or it can be I did some exciting sites today and discovered this and that and that or I just published this, this technical paper Ted Ward's Ward, Ward, does like do that a little bit because obviously I do talk about you know research that I've been involved in that I've, that I've published but mostly Tetrabodzoology exists in order to disseminate uh, information that I often feel is not really generally available online. And that isn't really kind of listed as a blogging remit when people talk about the sorts of things you're supposed to do. When people talk about sciencey, outreachy things that bloggers do, and it's not on the personal level, it's not, you know, like Researcher X talks about their research it's meant to be people are talking about some new exciting bit of research where this has just been discovered wow what is this you know yeah whereas yes yes obviously i do talk about new things on tetrapodzoology you know how can you not but um oftentimes it's just like you know i want to talk about like let's say the skinks of the world because if you want to find out about skinks of the world where do you go what do you look at and uh, often I can't do these things justice because it just I don't have enough time to you know write a thirty-part series on Skinks the World. Um, plus, it might be a little bit boring for people who want to read about other things. But um, <laughs> like for example, the Toad series I've I've never <laughs> I think I got to do about like part eleven or something. I've never finished because I got stuck with some obscure African ones I don't have any pictures of because there aren't any pictures of them that are available. But um, yeah, I, I see kind of like the dissemination of knowledge, the production of sort of like uh, reviews, um, and um, there are well, there aren't that many other bloggers that are doing this. I know a few other people that have kind of tried to do it, but um, of all the people that I think that are good that are writing science blogs in the world of zoology, natural history, paleontology, they tend to be writing about sort of specific specific issues specific animals specific you know groups of small groups of animals or i don't know um yeah a more specific topic maybe yeah yeah, yeah. i mean the, the problem is you know i can't think of that many science bloggers who do consistently do stuff that i think is i have to be careful not to sound too arrogant i don't want to but you know i don't think there are that many people that are doing stuff that's sort of on par with tetrapodology um I mean, there are some that do very good ones. I don't even know their names. I, I mentioned Andrea Cow because I think Therapoda is is brilliant. Um, but who else is doing that kind of thing? Apologies to all the bloggers I'm not mentioning. Don't don't be offended. Yeah, okay. Let's let's dig you out of this hole then. Yeah, thanks. I think there's a re- the reason for this is that um, well, one blogs uh, lend themselves to a sort of a newsy format, right? Yeah. So what do you write about now? Well, what's happening now? And they're all in order. So, you know, it sort of feels like that's a natural fit. So I think lots of bloggers go for more newsy sort of format. Mm. Um, also, oh, I've forgotten what I was going to say. I had a second point. Um, it seems to me that a lot of bloggers don't really like blog with an agenda. It's not like, like my aim is actually to try and basically review tetrapod diversity to write about all the groups of tetrapods and in fairly equal measure yes. whereas other people just seem to be oh i need to blog about something today oh that new paper just came out about that i don't know new kind of bird or whatever so 
Here's a quick article about that. Here's a new kind of bird. It comes from South America. It's got big tail feathers. Isn't it cool? Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, okay. It's where I was coming at was that sort of there's if they do have an agenda, it's sort of coming maybe from, and this is certainly quite common in the blogosphere, someone thinking that they should be doing science communication in some sort of traditional way. So digesting science news, for example. Yeah. Right? And putting out articles based on new things in science and digesting them for a broad audience. Um, and I don't think tetrapod zoology has ever attempted to do such a thing, which makes it a bit different. You know, there's a, well, it depends what you mean by broad audience, of course. Um, because as I said in the beginning, um, I think it's underestimated how many people have a very seri serious interest in, well, many scientific subjects, or any subjects indeed, and that you don't actually need to write in this generalised format to find a big audience. In fact, it might hurt you, because the people that are interested will probably want something a bit more in-depth. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that, that is one of the things that frustrates me the most about popular writing. It's like when people... Start writing about a, a subject that you know something about. I've, I have said this many times on Touch of Oddity. It's like they tell you the same five things that every single other person tells you. It's like, yes. you know. Uh, uh, example, okay, just random example basilisks, these big South American lizards. Mm. I, th there's a bunch of species. I want to know some stuff about what do they eat. Where do they live? As in, you know, are they, do they live on the forest floor? Do they live in the tree canopy? Do they cling on vertically on tree trunks? Do they hang out on branches above rivers? I want to know all that kind of stuff. So you look at all the books on them, you look at all the technical papers on them and stuff, and people say the same few things. They say, well, they're famously showy, well, they've got big crests. Yeah, I know that. I've seen a picture of one. Yeah. <laughs> and they're called Jesus Christ lizards because when threatened, they drop off a branch into the water and dash across the surface of the water. Yes, I know that's all that anybody ever says about them. And that <laughs> fact inspired several biomechanicists to study the toes of these lizards and they found out they've got these like weird little sort of pocket shaped scales that trap little air bubbles and therefore allow them to. You know, people have done biomechanical studies on the, how they actually are able to do this water running behavior. It's very cool, you know, interesting stuff. But that other stuff. Yeah, it's just not covered. So when I do a Tetrapod Zoology article, it's like, okay, you, you've heard this and you've heard this, because we've all heard that, because it's all that anybody ever says about them. What about the other stuff? Sometimes it's not known, but in some cases, it's buried in the obscure literature. I've made a bit of a habit of collecting the obscure literature. I've got quite a lot of it. And, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's you know, a worthy aim to try and disseminate that sort of information. Uh, with basilisks, I haven't succeeded because I couldn't find it. <laughs> but, uh, good example, Darren. Good example, yeah. Like I yeah. said, random example. But um... Okay, so I'm going to contra contrasting it to um, traditional scientific communication and what Tetsu does, which is narrower, I would say, in terms of audience. What is it for? Why do it? To get famous. <laughs> 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 all the monies <laughs> all the monies that's as we know that that is uh, 
Let's do a Wolf of Wall Street skit. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Except if we actually look at the money that Darren just threw, it's... it was a single 10 euro and a 5 euro. And a receipt. <laughs> That's no receipt. Double nectar points. Hey. Sainsbury's. Um, I, I started blogging because it looked like good fun. And and I wrote for a whole year, Tetrazoology version 1, purely for my own edification. Purely for the, you know, hey, look, that whole blogging lark looks like fun. Let's do it. I'm only doing a PhD. It's not like I need, it's not like I need my time or anything like that. That's right. Uh, and it probably was a procrastinatory... It probably was a time-wasting thing. A deliberate, uh, yeah procrastination thing because because now some people for do it doing a phd is no problem and they sit surrounded by the piles of cash and jetting around the world and mm. they just like do this their is, thing. this fits with everything i know about phd exactly. students yeah they just they go bash it out and no problems at all and they've yeah. got infinite time they've just got you know nothing but time yeah. no problem for them to do a phd so that's the that's the average phd person's experience yeah however <laughs> In my case, it was rather different. <laughs> I um, basically couldn't find the time to do it because I was too busy with children. Too busy looking after my young son. And uh, uh, obviously my wife's working full time. I just I just could never do it. And the only way I could do it was, was at night, which meant I wasn't getting any sleep because I was staying up all night working and going through a particularly bad patch thinking I'm just never going to get it done. And I thought, I know. I don't want to do my PhD anymore. I want something else to think about. So, uh, so you thought I'll do something extra. There's something additional. Yeah. That was a good time sapper. Yeah. Get even less sleep, and um, that's why I started blogging. And um, there you go. <laughs> I did manage to finish my PhD in that year anyway, so it's obviously you know all worked out fine. So um, from the noblest motives. Yes. Yes. The noblest of motives. <laughs> And um, and then obviously it was at the end of that first year, two thousand six, that I was brought into the uh, science blogs, yeah, science mm-hmm. blogs network, and uh, started getting paid to blog. But also, um, the stuff that now, now I'd already for several years been doing consultancy work for um, books, companies that do like kids' books and stuff, and I'd already written couple of books written dinosaurs of the isle of Wight in like 2001 or something covered that with dave martill and also the walking with dinosaurs book which was came off the back of dave martill's my my former phd supervisor came this came off the back of dave being a consultant for walking with dinosaurs i'd already you know got a couple of books under my belt but having stuff online on a blog that anyone can see um that people think is you know okay or, or even good um yeah, started getting offers from companies that are, you know, we've seen this. We'd be we we're interested in, you know, using you to, to do this and and since since then, since two thousand seven, I have been able to make a living mm. as a uh They can't see your quotation. <laughs> no, <mark>. Shut up <laughs> <laughs> Can't you see me in my luxurious apartment here? Um Yeah, been able to survive <laughs> solid uh, gold house solid gold house <laughs> um with uh yeah just just off 
popular writing, consultancy, freelancing, a uh, combination of blogging, magazine articles, books, book consultancy. Um, so, and that's all come as a direct result of Tetrapod's Aldi. So, um, yes, I've kind of seen it as an empire building thing. Empire building thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess what I was getting at, right, was um, that science communication is typically sort of, I don't want to say justified, because you don't really need a justification for it, but more people think it's about letting people know the truth about what's going on in the world of science, uh, mainly, well, to help them make better decisions for themselves, to know what's real in the world, maybe, stuff like this. And I was thinking that, given that Tetsu, well, it's, it's obviously a much smaller subject than science in general, but it's also got a smaller audience... What sort of role do you think that's playing in society in general? Well, I could say something extremely... What's the right term? Uh, obnoxious, which is that it's, you know, we're, we're surrounded by conspicuous efforts that anti-intellectualize the world. You know, there's this strong push towards anti-intellectualism, one could say. Um, mm. But maybe, I don't know. But but then, on the other hand, has that always been there? Because it's not like you know, for as long as TV's been around, TV's been crap, right? <laughs> yeah. And for as I don't know, as... you know, you look at some of those TV shows from the fifties where they have like men in tuxedos playing the piano while they talk about philosophy. You know, those sorts of shows. Really? They I used to s- exist. I never saw those. Really? No. Well, no one did. They were in the fifties. <clears throat> there was stuff like that. Where, whereas, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a tricky. It's, a, you, you, it's difficult to make generalizations like that, isn't there? Because there's always a huge percentage of the population of any time and any place that isn't interested in uh, intellectualism, you know, science, natural history, culture, blah blah blah. But at the same time, there always is, there always has been a large community that is interested in that stuff, that does understand the significance of culture and science and and stuff, and. Uh, you know, I would like to see Tetrabodzwaldi. Well, like imagine Tetrabodzwaldi as part of a community of, um, um, you know, uh, efforts and people that are about uh, promoting the, the 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 wonder and significance of discovery and science and nature in our lives. And um, yeah, I mean, there's lots of things that, to be honest, I'm not particularly interested in. But other other parts of the, the world of science that you know, Tetrabodzwaldi is, is sort of part of this general movement towards, you know, helping to to disseminate what we know what we know about science, and also just I think a passion and an enthusiasm for this stuff. I, mean, I can't say whether I'm particularly passionate or enthusiastic. I personally feel that I am, but you know, I don't know how well I. Um, oh look, yeah. I mean, you just—you're a bit of a slacker. So, I mean, I am. You know, a I don't know whether you could call yourself passionate, enthusiastic. It's yeah. just you don't really do very much, do you? So, yeah. Well, <laughs> I have, yeah, I have so we'll people. lay off that one. But yeah, enough <laughs> people saying this to believe it. So yeah, but I guess so, what I'm. Oh, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Well, oh, just briefly, uh, it's like you know. There are people like saying, wow, dinosaurs are really awesome or, you know, wow, birds are really beautiful or something. But, you know, you need people blogging about, 
you know, crappy little brown lizards and saying, well, they're actually, you know, you, you learn about this, it's actually, this is really amazing, this is really weird. Did you realise how weird these things are? And, uh, you know, animals that, you know, rabbits are really weird. And, uh, oh, rabbits, take a drink. Oh. Keith, you nickel in drinking game. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Oh, no, I, it was chickens, chickens. Chickens, chickens. Yeah. Well, we um, just did chickens, yes. Um, yeah, that, that's actually what I was going to jump in and say. I think what is different about Tetsu is the um, relentless focus on variety relentless relentless focus on variety i mean forcing yourself to write about every single thing in the in some obscure clade is is something that you just don't generally generally get in um science writing forcing <laughs> yes well you you have admitted it has been a struggle sometimes uh only when it involves fish and yeah. that's for another project mm. so uh... No, you know, I, everything I do on Touchable is already... Yeah, sometimes it's difficult, and sometimes I get stuck. I said I yeah. get stuck with the toads. That's because no one else has put any information about them online, or when they have, it's fiercely protected through copyright. No, you can't use my pictures, because that's like stealing my car, um, as someone told me once. Um, but no, it's, it's never a chore writing about the animals that I'm interested in. The book that I'm doing at the moment, on the other hand... <laughs> Okay, forcing was the wrong word. What I meant was deliberately setting out yeah, to yeah, write yeah. about um, variety rather than... A lot of um, science writing is about more about getting to the general principles, right? Here's an illustration of evolution. Yeah. It is, is the way a lot of these things are approached, which I think leads to bringing out the same examples over and over again because they're the best examples, but that also leads generally, even fairly knowledgeable people to think that there's less variety yeah. in the stuff we're looking at than you would otherwise think. So, um, and I think that's what's interesting about the focus on variety and the audience. Even though the audience of Tetsu is extremely knowledgeable, everyone is going to be consistently surprised and find out things they didn't know and about whole groups of animals they didn't even know existed occasionally, I would say. Which I think is interesting in terms of science communication. Even even amongst the very knowledgeable uh, mm-hmm. groups, there's a there's still a lot of ignorance about variety because I think we've most of us have grown up with this sort of re emphasizing good examples of general principles sort of thing. Um which I think isn't uh is possibly a unique contribution to science writing. Although, of course, you could argue that there's there's lots of sort of field guide sorts of things which are about, you know, tracking down every last one. There's that sort of tradition, isn't there? But a lot of them don't. Got to catch them all. Yeah, got to catch them all. But they don't they don't tie it in with the things that, um, particularly, the paleontology crowd is very interested in evolution and um, yeah. deeper systematics and stuff, which does happen on Tetsu. Um, so, is that what the hell is going on with Tetsu? That, I like the way you say it. Yeah, I think that's, uh, yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know, I just write stuff, man. <laughs> just do some shit, man. I just, I just let it flow, man, and see what happens. <laughs> um, sometimes finding the, uh, uh I, I do go to a lot of trouble to, um, yeah, to gather illustrations and, and stuff and uh, I'm increasingly having to create things myself because what I want to show just doesn't exist or I have something specific in mind or I generate something and use it as a product 
So that's, <laughs> yes. that's becoming more of a thing uh, now. For the Tetsu so. shop on Redbubble. Yep, thanks to Daniel Hewitt for that unusual question. Yeah, thank you, Daniel. Will we do uh, Tet... I think we'll do part two next episode. Yeah. This could be a long-running thing. We could have a section yeah. of the show called What the Hell's Going On Over There? What the Hell Is Going On Over There? It yeah. seems to be a cow yeah. in a field. It's very small. <laughs> These cows are just are far away. Close, those are far away. Um, okay, so we've got another cash for question. And this is from friend of the show, Sharon Hill. Yeah, just look at Sharon's got a Wikipedia page. Does she? Wow, oh, did you see all yesterday's? Of course, got loads of pictures of her on it. How do you do that? How do you get? Like Someone's three... got to write it for you. Ah, there's no pictures of me on Wikipedia. So, from Sharon Hill, prehistoric animals with sails drive me friggin' crazy. <laughs> that is so weird. What were the vertebral extensions really for? Answer me that, Darren. <laughs> Riddle me this. Like the style of your question, Sharon. So, prehistoric animals with sails. We've got. We've got synapsids, non-mammalian synapsids, stem mammals, uh, like famously Dimetrodon and Adaposaurus, and several others that have dorsal sails. We have spine, uh, dinosaurs like Spinosaurus and Uranosaurus with dorsal sails, uh, and many others. <laughs> what else is there? Is that, what else has got dorsal sails? Oh my god, I can't believe I've forgotten. Oh, there's um, crocline archosaurs like Lotosaurus and Arizonosaurus, mm, so yeah. Triassic archosaurs that are not dinosaurs, part of the croc lineage. Um, so this has evolved independently at least, I mean, you know, at least three times and definitely more than that because the sail-backed non-mammalian synapses are not all close relatives, neither are the dinosaurs. Yeah, of course. Oh, what am I talking about? It's going to be like five times or more, whatever. Mm. So as is tradition in paleontology, people see these structures now... There are many paleontologists that know a lot about animals that are experts on biology, trained in biology, that know a lot about you know biomechanics and physiology and stuff. But there are also a lot of paleontologists that I don't think do know that much about animals and only tend to look at things as if they're rocks. And I don't know if this is the problem, but there seems to be this tradition in paleontology of people seeing the sails and thinking, must have been, must have been like a yacht or must have been like a radiator must have been for collecting heat must have had some job must have done a job in the animal and um you there's various ways of like testing these proposed functions but um as as usual i don't really know how to explain this the right way around mm. It's like my maybe it's maybe it's me, but my way of thinking about these things is well, hold on. Are there like living analogs? Are there sort of living animals that have a structure like this? And if so, how do they use it? I think you should kind of start off that way. And what hasn't been discussed enough it sort of links back, segs back to what I was saying about basilisks earlier. Basilisks are specifically relevant here. Is there are a bunch of living animals that have dorsal sails, but they're you know really understudied and virtually nothing is known about the anatomy of their sails or what the sails are for so there are lizards with dorsal sails so there's a whole set of chameleon species that have got really tall neural spines so the spines that grow upwards from the back of the vertebrae really tall spines forming a sail over the back of the animal and sometimes the tail as well and then there's several 
large lizards like basilisks and the hydrosaurus water dragons, which also have sails. And I don't just mean like a low little frill. I mean like, you know, in an animal a metre long, the sail is like, you know, 20 centimetres tall. This is proportionally pretty much like that of a Spinosaurus or a Dimetrodon or whatever. What do those animals use them for? Well, you know, slightly... Uh, what's that word when the ground's funny? Um, murky? <laughs> murky ground? Slightly muddy. Muddy ground? I don't know. It's a little bit... It's a bit of a dangerous footing. Because <laughs> Marshy. <laughs> quicksand. It's quick sandy ground. I don't know. Whatever. It's like, basically what I'm trying to say is... It's shaky. A, it's shaky ground might be a thing. Might be a little bit difficult. It's the drink. It's because I shouldn't play the Nickly Keezy drinking game. Stop that. Um. Um. People yeah, shaky, haven't <laughs> shaky ground. People yeah. haven't uh, probably po- slightly shaky ground because people haven't properly studied these the living animals to start with. But every indication is that those sail-like structures and tall neural spines in chameleons, sail-like structures in the lizards, are some way used in sociosexual display. They are they are for advertising to make yourself a more attractive mate to um you know show off your genetic quality or they're used in a visual display of other forms as in you know chameleons tend to be laterally compressed they stand up tall to make themselves look big um when confronted by predators that may be the case for these lizards themselves i don't know because i'm not aware of any studies that have been done on this but the the general gist of it seems to be that they are visual display structures that probably evolved under sexual selection pressure. They're basically to make these animals... Uh, they're there for the advertisement of um, yeah, genetic quality uh, and therefore to it presumably play a role in increasing mating success. So that hasn't been, in my opinion, someone might you know disagree with me here, but in my opinion, this has never been discussed enough in the literature whenever people talk about sail-backed fossil animals. They never start by saying... People say Spinosaurus has got a sail, so could the sail have been used for thermoregulation? Because it looks like it was a good radiating device. They never say this is reminiscent of the structures seen in these lizards, where the sails are apparently used for sociosexual display, it seems. Um, having said that, the recent paper by Nizar Ibrahim and colleagues on Spinosaurus, now they looked at the neural spines in chameleons, and they said, look at this, the neural spines of chameleons some chameleons, look really similar to the neural spines in Spinosaurus. And in chameleons, those spines support, you know, a thin web of tissue. It's basically used as a, as a, as a sail. They do make a comment on this. Um, I was going to publish a paper on this, on the anatomy of uh, chameleon neural spines. And if you go on Tetrabod Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American, and look at an article about... Concabinator. Let me find the article. An article from September 2010. Concavenator, or nader, how some people say it. Mm. An incredible allosauroid with a weird sail or hump and proto feathers. So I did blog about this animal when it was uh, recent, you know, when it was new. 
Um, if you scroll down in the article, most of it's about does this animal have feathers on its arms? That was a thing that people were talking about. Does it, is it similar to an animal from England called Beckel Spinax? But I also, he says, oh, here it is at the bottom. Yeah. I also talk about the fact, spoke about the fact uh, about the tall neural spines. I'm going to read this. Okay. I have one more thing to say. What were the tall neural spines for? Ortega et al. 2010, so the authors of the paper on concavenata, they conclude that we just can't say, although they note that thermoregulatory display or energy storage functions have all been suggested. I tend to prefer the display option, but only by analogy with the extant tall spine reptiles that everyone seems to ignore whenever they talk about tall neural spines. Sure, maybe these structures were partially buried in fat or muscle, but the implication from some that they simply must have been like this and that the existence of dorsal sails is a total no-no. You know, you'll know some people have argued that these structures were not sails in some of the in, in dinosaurs. It's been argued that they were, you know, encased in like fat. They look more like humps, like those of bison. Um, this this argument ignores the fact that you know all tetrapods aren't mammals. There are living reptiles with dorsal sails. I really must get photos of a sail back chameleon neural spine sometime. <laughs> so I'm saying that in 2010. And then I did go and photograph some chameleon neural spines. Um, I was doing the osteological correlate thing where you look for the marks of the musculature and ligaments and then you try and compare that with what you see in fossil animals. And, um, um, yeah, you say whether they're similar or dissimilar. So, And, and as I say, that has now been... Uh, Ibrahim et al. have now touched on this as well. They've said that Spinosaurus, those neural spines almost certainly do support a sail, not a hump, not a big fatty ridge, but a sail on the basis of analogy with chameleons. Now, moving back or forwards or sideways, whatever, to the synapsids like Dimetrodon, um, the sails of those animals are a lot weirder than we are normally led to believe. We tend to, first of all, so, so there's two major things. There's a lot of specimens of some of these fossil animals. There's a lot of specimens of Dimetrodon. There's lots of species of Dimetrodon, and for some of them there's lots of specimens of different body sizes, and they allow us to produce growth trajectories for these animals, some idea of like how quickly they grew and the changes they underwent in size as they grew. And it seems that the change in the size of the sail of Dimetrodon, it changed in size, it, un- it underwent positive allometry during growth. The sail got bigger proportionally much quicker than the rest of the body. Its growth was like out of step with the rest of the body. And given that we have some idea of what the sail should work how it should work if it's a thermoregulatory structure, you know, it needs to be uh, a certain, um, like, uh, there, seems, there needs to be a relationship between the sail size and the body size for it to work in mm. thermoregulatory fashion. It's been shown that the crest grows too quickly for it to be explained in thermoregulatory terms alone. It seems to be getting much faster than you'd expect based on the volume of the animal. This is, mm-hmm. this is all explained in a paper by Joe Tompkins, and colleagues, uh, Dave Martill and Mark Witten, him again, they were involved uh, again because pterosaurs were also covered in the same paper. And the, the, the form of the, 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 the allometric slope, the, the, the pace of the positive allometry in the, in the, the, the sail 
of dimetrodon is on par with what you see in sexual display, socio-sexual display structures because of course animals reach sexual maturity their display structures all of a sudden you know grow very quickly to be at full adult size you think of like people going through puberty are secondary sexual characteristics they don't carry on growing slowly at the same rate as the rest of us maybe i shouldn't talk about people because it seems a little bit weird but whatever you know peacock's tail a, a, a young peacock his tail male peacock his tail's not that big and all of a sudden he reaches puberty and bam you know overnight he gets a full-size tail a strong positive allometry that pattern seems to be the case in in dimetrodon which um it's also in several other structures that probably should be you know, weird structures like another one is the the boomerang shaped head of the nectridian diplocaulus they probably should be interpreted as having most likely evolved under sexual selection pressure uh, because this this form of positive allometry is not consistent with you know whatever other function has been proposed thermoregulation in the case of dimetrodon um the other weird stuff about dimetrodon is to do with the actual shape of the, the neural spines. You imagine them, right, as just being rods. But yeah, yeah, then in, yeah. in some dimetrodon species they are, but in others they're, they're like um, figure eight in cross-section. Um, and there's a... <coughs> I, I, I need to, I, actually, I'm not going to talk about this some more because it's going off at a tangent, but, um, but there's, there's, it allows you... There's like grooves on the side of them that allows you to say sensible things about what the, um, what the vasculature was like. And they do not have the... There, there is not an indication of um, the sort of vascularization, amount of blood supply that you would expect for it to function efficiently as a thermoregulatory device. Mm. So... And more broadly, I would say that there's a problem hypothesizing that these things are thermoregulatory devices when you've got very similar animals with nothing, right? Yeah. And there are relatively close relatives of Dimetrodon with no sail, Sphenacodon. Um, and therefore, what were these other animals doing? Because I could see, I can see the attraction of the thermoregulatory hypothesis with especially something like Dimetrodon. You know, you, you're getting up, you're imagining a cold-blooded animal, and we're not really allowed to say that. We really should do a special episode on this so we can <laughs> pin it all down, huh? <sighs> you're getting relatively large for a cold-blooded animal. Maybe you not need to start doing something a bit unusual. Um, but, yeah, it, you, when you've got very similar animals with nothing, and this is the case with dinosaurs as well, you know, you've got big theropods with no sails, so if this was necessary or... Even in the same environment, yeah. Even in the same environment, yeah, um, for thermoregulation, then you would expect to see... You might get some variation, but you'd expect to see all of them having some sort of um, extra thing. And instead, what you have is some animals with absolutely nothing and some animals with a hugely exaggerated um, uh, sales. And I just... This is not what you would expect given a functional hypothesis for them. Is it? No. Um, so, although I can c certainly see the attraction uh, for thermoregulatory hypotheses about these things, especially in, um, I don't know, Dimetrodon-type animals, I, I just, I can't, I, I don't think it does really hold up to the totality of evidence we have now. I think... Um, well... The, the history of how these ideas developed is interesting as well because 
I think the idea, the, the, the main sort of like, you know, the thermoregulatory paradigm has sort of emerged from a series of like misinterpretations. If you, if you think in your head of how people imagine, as, as, think, as opposed to thinking outside your head, yeah? Mm, if, you, yeah. If, you, if you think of like how people imagine the, the creatures concerned, whenever I think of a classic artistic reconstruction of Dimetrodon, and Edaphosaurus, another one of these famous sail-backed uh, non-mammalian synapses. I always think of it as basically in a you know a rubble field like Mars. Looks like the surface yeah. of Mars. That's where it lives, right? Yeah. And the same for Spinosaurus and Uranosaurus. You think of how they're depicted in books. They're shown as living in the Sahara Desert. Yeah. And um, is this is this accurate? Well, if so, people have I think imagined these animals as living in desert or semi-desert environments. And long story short, that's not accurate in the least. Okay. The Dimetrodon and Kin, they were living in, you know, like well watered, well forested tropical lowland habitats. And dinosaurs like Spinosaurus, they were living in, you know, again, heavily vegetated tropical humid sort of estuarine delta kind of, you know, uh, places with lots of rivers and lakes, you know, or in keeping with Spinosaurus being a semi aquatic or amphibious, as we've discussed before. I think that's kind of part of the problem. People have got this like wrong idea. Um, with Dimetrodon, there's a couple of papers from I think the like the first half of the 20th century where one or two people did actually seriously you know come up with an argument that could this have been there's a, there's a famous paper called you know temperature control in sail lizards I can't remember the, the name of the author or the, when it was published but you know people latched onto this idea did actually test it whereas for the dinosaurs I can't remember specifically what Stromer said if anything about the sail Stromer being the guy who originally described Spinosaurus and, and wrote about these crazy neural spines. But I wonder if, in the case of the dinosaurs, it happened in books, in popular books, where people started, you know, drawing dinosaurs in the Sahara Desert and, and then implying that maybe the sale was for thermoregulation. And then it sort of crept into mainstream consciousness and then became, you know, the, the default. You know the paradigm, the sort of main, yeah. the main explanation as to what they most likely were for. Um, yeah, should look into that. But um, yeah, whether this is really a, a notion that's come out of the scientific literature, or more a notion that's just come through a popular culture sort of route and maybe yeah. found its way back into the scientific literature. Yeah, yeah, I, I bet you that's true for the dinosaurs, because one of the main sort of drivers of like our perception of dinosaurs is is. Not necessarily what's in technical papers. You know, you find an idea has become popular because everybody's written about it in kids' books. Mm. And, and the people that write the kids' books, with all due respect to them, <laughs> I'm good at insulting people, aren't I? Um, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of people that write kids' books that aren't the ones doing the primary research on the animals or, or are sort of generalists, people who write about everything. And, yeah, uh, they're children's books writers rather than, um, yeah, rather than paleontology specialists well yeah but and even yeah. some of the people that are paleontology specialists they're like you know if you work mm. on fossil fish you end up writing a book on dinosaurs that kind of thing yeah. or if you're an expert on rhynchosaurs you end up writing loads of books on dinosaurs <laughs> um <laughs> so so i don't know about you and maybe i'm biased i mean i, I do have a proverbial horse in this race after all this is something i publish quite a lot on but i i really can't help but think that so far, the several lines of evidence that we are, you know, seeing that are relevant to the evolution, the the, dis the, dis 
the the presence of sales in mm. extinct animals it's probably similar you know the evolutionary factors behind their evolution the the evolutionary <laughs> whatever's led to their evolution <sighs> is similar to slash the same as the evolutionary forces that have led to the presence of these structures in extant animals so they are their their evolution has been driven by a role in socio-sexual display visual yep. display whether that display is is sexual to do with mating success whether it's to intimidate predators or whether it's both or what mm. is, i would say is is still controversial and and uncertain but, um, I, I mean, it suffers a lot from a lot of these. This is the problem of paleontology, isn't it? There's just often it's very difficult to dig up the evidence to conclusively show something one way or the other. And you know, this is this is actually a challenge even in living animals to find out what structures are definitely for, and the hope that we'll be able to find out with um, extinct animals is is slimmer, isn't it? Although I think, yeah, I think a discussion has suggested that. Uh, the thermoregulatory uh, hypothesis is is weak at the moment, and they need to, something fairly convincing would have to come up to yeah. resurrect it. I think. As a yeah. Now, front just, runner. Sorry, J- just Go just ahead. well, just finally, I would say that is it possible that there's some other you know left field function. Mm. or a- evolutionary force that we haven't considered or or can't test that could possibly explain these structures given that you know we know of many cases in living animals where really really w- really weird things you know there's 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 a oh i can't think of any <laughs> i can't think of any examples but peculiar structures and they have a very peculiar function um is it possible that sort of thing you know, might have affected the evolution of these structures, and uh, well, that does seem possible, but I can't think of anything. I'm just trying. To, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything we've missed. Mm, I've never heard of any other. Well, there is an idea that is floating around that we haven't discussed, and that's uh, support for fat mm. for fat deposits. Um, I would say that in the case of the very tall spined animals, this just doesn't look right to me. No, but. And also, why is it necessary? Why not just store fat like everything else? Or, like a camel, store it without the bone, and it doesn't need the bone. That's the whole funny thing, isn't it? That the animals that do have fatty humps, or 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 big, you know, well, you know, yeah, fatty humps that don't don't um, correspond with uh, tall spines. Yeah. So um, I think. That's a, that's the weakest hypothesis in many ways. Yeah, and I, and and yeah, it's like you know a lot of reptiles they want to put on fat. They store it like at the base of the tail. You do not need to. Uh, and and also, I think the the fat store hypothesis again arose from the notion that these dinosaurs are living in an environment that they did not inhabit in real life. And nobody's ever suggested this sort of thing for the synapsids because it just doesn't look at all like they're structures are in any way in keeping with that sort of role but um, mm. 
But yeah, I would say the same thing that other people have. You know, for animals like, um, say, Spinosaurus, there's going to be, you know, there's obviously ligaments between the neural spines. There has to be interspinous ligaments. And there's going to be, like, fat, you know, packed onto the sides, as there often is against the sides of neural spines. And there's going to be muscles as well. But, you know, there's... So the, the base of the spine, the base of the sail, rather... You, you imagine this animal in cross-section... Mm. It's not just necessarily going to have like a sheet of card sticking up over the back. There might be some sort of you know grading into the the bottom part of the sail where there's where there's muscle and fat and stuff. But um, but yeah, the whole yeah. the whole idea that these animals are buffalo backed, which was suggested a few years ago by Jack Lady <coughs> in, in his paper, yeah. in all yesterday's, and it's in and it's in all yesterday's as well, of course. Yeah, but I said at the time I didn't I didn't I didn't like that I didn't buy it, but. Um, well, there's many things in all yesterday's that I don't buy. Yeah, that's the point. Right. Oh, is it? Oh, um, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's wrap this thing up now because we've been talking for nearly three hours. Holy moly! Uh, it's not going to be a three-hour-long podcast, but we've been talking for a long time. Uh, <sighs> okay. Okay. <laughs> right. Where can they find you on the internet, Darren? Uh, my name is Darren Nash. I currently... Bl- oh, sorry. Uh, hang on, hang on, hang on. I should say, yeah, thanks to Sharon Hill for that question. Thanks for all our cash requesters. Oh, yeah, thanks. And thanks to our uh, many supporters, financiers, overseers, yeah. hedge funders, <laughs> tweeters, sharers, followers, likers. Yeah, thank you, Sharon. Yep. Um, yeah, thanks to everyone who helps support our uh, costs... We always need your money, and uh, <laughs> <Sure> <laughs> and yeah, um, yeah. So, so where can they find you? There's a blog called Tetrapods Worldy, currently hosted at Scientific American. I there's a Tetrapods Worldy Facebook page. If you're on Facebook, check out Tetrapods Worldy page. Supplementary material, kind of like sneak peeks of stuff to come. Um, definitely needs more likes. Only has four thousand four hundred. Is that good or bad? No idea. That seems pretty good, but yeah. I tweet at. Not entirely stable. I'm glad you're here to tell us these things. Chewy, take the refresher in the back and plug them into the hyperdrive. At Tetzu. Um, those of you interested in the uh, sort of stuff we talk about might want to check out some of our books if you haven't done so already. We published a book called. All yesterday's about science and speculation in paleontology available from our irregular books website. Don't buy it from Amazon because they're all a bunch of crooks. (laughs) 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 Nervous laugh. And uh, oh, if you're getting the Kindle edition, you can buy it from Amazon. In fact, that's the only place you can get it Um, because Amazon's the only place that sells Kindle. But yes, so but the paper paperback it's best if you go to a regular books and find the link to the Lulu. Otherwise, we make seventy p a book, which is just useless. Seventy p a between three people. Between three people, yeah. Oh, four people. Doesn't Scott get a cut as well? Oh, he does, yes. Yes. Even better. So, four people, right. indeed. Uh, remember to contribute to the Tetsu Wikia. Or Tetsu Wiki. Edit as appropriate, John. Mm. And now we come to the part of the show we call Tim Morris Baiting. Uh, because there's also a book called The Cryptozoologicon, Volume 1, also available from our shop, our Lulu shop. And. Cryptozoological Volume 2. Mm. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Tim. 
<laughs> I promise that I have I have some <laughs> thunder and lightning accompanying the laughter. Uh, yeah. He's quite okay, well, to, he's I'll quite genuinely find. offended by the fact that volume two isn't out yet. Sorry about that. We're working on it. Promise. In fact, just before this show, we were saying how much work, how little work there is to do, but yeah. uh, there's other things in the way. You're right. That's me done. Okay. Um, I'm at johnconway.co. You can find links to my Facebook and Twitter. That's it. I think that's that's short and sweet. Let's finish this up. Yeah. Oh right, no do- do- donations. We should do donations. I keep forgetting that because we do need the money. Yeah, donate to the podcast. That's good. Um, cash for questions are good, and recurring donations are good. So, to do cash for question, you click the donate to the podcast button, and then in the uh, notes field, just stick in your question. Uh, if you email separately, as some people have done, because we never explained the uh, procedure in the earlier episodes. There's a chance I might lose it because I'm not very organised. So yeah, do put it in the uh, in the notes when you donate to the podcast. And um, recurring donations are good. PayPal lets you do recurring donations, which is excellent, um, even if it's only a, like a very small amount, like a dollar or a pound a month. That's that's very much appreciated. And we've got a few thousand listeners, and only about thirty of you do recurring donations. So there's a lot of freeloaders out there, Darren. Freeloaders. <laughs> although, yeah. although you know, to be fair, they might have bought our books or I don't cash know. For questions I don't know. or things like that. But if you're a freeloader, shame on you. Shame yeah. on you. Yeah. If you list, you're listening right now, where's my money? Where's yeah. my money? <laughs> I should charge you for listening to this podcast. Uh, just quickly on Facebook, thank you, David Pruss, Karen McCormick, McCormick, Andrew Blayman, uh, Alex Klein, Dwayne Nash, Scott Mardis... Uh, Scott, Marcus Good, Jay Bizarzu, C, Stevie Moore, Dale Drennan, Dwayne Nash, and the interesting debate we had about hippos and whether they can swim or not. Thank you, Noble Laureate MP Mars. Thank you, Sharon Hill for Sharon says we should just talk about more Muppets. Thank you, Scotty Westfall. Thank you, Gaffer Mondo, Gareth Monger. Thank you, Henry Pilstrom, Tim Morris, Nick Grabau. I'm sure I've pronounced that incorrectly. Drink, drink, drink. Right, okay, and that's All the right. end of that chapter. Good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, hang on, I'm stopping it now. <laughs>